Joshua chapter 22, we're going to read to verse 5. Then Joshua called the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh and said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and have obeyed my voice in all that I commanded you. You have not left your brethren these many days up to this day, but have kept the charge of the commandment of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brethren as he, as he has promised them. Now therefore return and go to your tents and to the land of your possession, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. But take careful heed to do the commandment and the law which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments, to hold fast to him, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. In chapter 21, Joshua wrote about the designated cities of refuge. In chapter 22, Joshua is going to write about a divisive altar that's going to create a conflict that's going to literally put this infant state in jeopardy. Joshua is going to spend the final chapters, chapter 22 and 23 and 24, imparting wisdom, but also giving warning. For Joshua commends or praises the two and a half tribes for their loyalty and faithfulness in fulfilling the mission of conquering the land in verses 1 and 2. And then the commendation leads to a word of caution. I need you to obey. I need you to be faithful. And so it begins with lessons in loyalty, faithfulness, and then fulfilling the mission in verses 1 through 3. In verse 1 it says, Then Joshua called the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and have obeyed my voice in all that I commanded you. You'll recall in the several chapters that we've studied that Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh asked to have the east side of the Jordan. They saw in that pasture land a land that they could cultivate and a land that they could use. And you'll remember that the Lord allowed them to dwell on the east side of the river. That Moses, before they entered the land, gave or imparted this part of the land to them. And the conditions in occupying that land was at least twofold. And number one, that they, when they did enter the land of promise, when they crossed to the west side of the Jordan, that the men of war, this means the professional soldiers in the tribe of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh would serve as the tip of the spear, that they would be sort of the advance guard that would conquer and then possess the land. And you'll remember that this is part of the theme of this book. It's 
conquering Canaan. And we saw in that a type and a picture of our own life in Christ. That God calls us to possess the Lord. To possess his promises. To walk in his ways. To live lives of victory. And so these men kept their promise. And with Joshua's gratitude and blessing, they're granted permission to return to the territories east of the Jordan River. So Joshua calls the eastern tribes to stand before them in all of their military splendor. This is like one of those days where thank you for your service. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for keeping your word. Thank you for keeping your promises. In verse 3 it says, You have not left your brethren these many days up to this day. You have kept the charges of the commandment of the Lord your God. They had served, if my calculations are correct, from the time that they're occupying the land till the time that they've split the land in half, they've conquered from the north, they've possessed the middle of the land and the south. This has been a seven-year campaign. They've been away from their family. They've been away from their wives and their children. They have longed to go home, and now the conditions have been, have been met. They have served as the tip of the spear. They were the first to confront the, the battle. They were the first to take the loss. The major battles were now concluded. The land was conquered. The men were loyal to their leaders. They were loyal to their fellow soldiers and brethren. Look what it says. And loyal in keeping the commandment of the Lord your God. And so now they're going to enter into their reward. And they, they're going to be released for serving faithfully in verses 4 and 5. And it says, and now the Lord your God has given Rest to your brethren as he promised them. Now, therefore, return and go to your tents and to the land of your possession, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. The Lord promised rest for them and for the people who occupy the land. And so the Lord promises rest again for us. In body, in soul. The rest that he's talking about means peace of mind and peace of heart. This is not only peace with your neighbors, but peace with God. It's the sense of security and protection and meaning and fulfillment and satisfaction in life. So here, rest is a part of the life of victory. Remember, they were to penetrate the land. They were to occupy the land. They were to possess the land. And in that penetration, occupation, and possession, now came the point where there was a sense of rest. And it's, so it should be for you as a Christian. Life shouldn't be one unending battle. It shouldn't be a perpetual war. There does come a time where Jesus gives you rest. Remember Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. And when you feel like the weight of the world is upon you and the difficulties are no longer, you're able to bear them, Jesus gives us rest. Now again, in the land, were there still enemies? Yes. Were there still battles that they had to fight? Yes. 
Did their enemies still seek to destroy them? The answer is yes. But our Savior provides the security of his presence, provision, and guidance. And here's what we also learn. That just like they have enemies, we have enemies. And I've repeatedly talked with you about the world, the flesh, and the devil. Your enemies are still seeking to destroy you. But God promises you a rest. But with the promise comes a warning, even for these military men who are being discharged from their duty. In verse 5 it says, But take careful heed to do the commandment and the law which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. To love the Lord your God, to walk in all of his ways, to keep his commandments, to hold fast to them, to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. And these instructions should sound very familiar to you, especially for those of you who come to church here on Sunday. And we've been looking in the book of Matthew where Jesus is confronted by one of the Pharisees about which is the greatest commandment. These same instructions are going to be given to all of the tribes in the next chapter, in chapter 23, where we will talk a little bit more at length about them. But here, Joshua is saying, you're being discharged from your duties. Your obligations have been met. But you still have spiritual duties. You still have a requirement. And that is to love the Lord with all your mind and all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. And for those of you who want more information about that, you should read Matthew chapter 23, verses 34 through 40, which we just studied last Sunday. Remember, at that time I told you that Jesus quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 8, 18, when he was asked about the greatest commandment. He puts both of these concepts together. These tribes who settled the east side of the, the Jordan and honored their commitment and served in the military and secured the promised land for the remaining tribes are now going home. And remember what I spoke to you early. There are two camps who see their settlement in the east side. One is a compromise and one is, oh well. I've already told you that I view their occupation of the land east of the river as a subtle compromise. Because instead of being surrounded by their brothers, they're going to be surrounded by their enemies. And whenever they're attacked, it's always going to be a problem. These are what I've already referred to you as borderline Christians. These are the ones who become a type and a picture of Christians who work, who play, who live, who live less than a, than what I would call a committed life. In many areas of their life, they're compromised. But Joshua is going to remind them of their ongoing spiritual responsibilities to the Lord. Yes, they're on the east side of the river, but they are the children of promise. They are children of Jacob. They are children of the, of the covenant. These tribes confess and identify themselves 
as believers in the Lord and a part of the covenant. And so therefore they should keep the commandments of the Lord, the law of the Lord. They're to love the Lord, walk in his ways, obey God, hold fast to God. And that word in the Hebrew language, hold fast, is the same word that's translated in the book of Genesis when it talks about Adam and Eve and the two shall be one it's the same word. It can be used to describe being glued together. Or if you take two different metals, soldering them together. It was a word that meant unity, but a radical kind of a unity. And so it means to adhere or cling, serve God. And Joshua makes it clear that loving the Lord isn't something that you do half-heartedly, but wholeheartedly. You do it with your mind. You do it with your soul. You do it with your, your strength. And, and here, again, strength, like in the New Testament, means will, with all of your might. These tribes living east of the Jordan say, we are God's people. We are a part of God's covenant. And so Joshua says, then love the Lord. Obey the Lord. Loving him means standing firm. It means maintaining the profession of faith. It means being true to the Lord, both in worship and devotion. And of course, part of the takeaway for us is that when a person says, I'm a Christian, I've accepted Christ as my Savior. I love him. I want to serve him. I want to walk with him. Then again, it's okay for you to have an expectation that a person who loves the Lord, serves the Lord, who identifies with Christ should be expected to act like a Christian. Probably the most dangerous thing that could ever take place in the whole wide world is for an unbeliever or a make-believer who pretends to be a Christian, who yet wants to walk and talk and act like a Christian. There's nothing more difficult than to be a make-believer, to not really know him, to not having really been saved. And so Joshua pleads with them and reminds them, but he's also thanking them. And then there's a rewarding of obedience in verses 6 through 8. It says, Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their tents. Now to the half-tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given possession in Bashan. But to the other half of it, Joshua gave possession among the brethren on the side of the Jordan. You'll remember that. Part of the tribe lived on the east side. Part of the tribe lived on the west side. Half of it, Joshua gave possession among their brethren on this side of the Jordan. When Joshua uses that term, he means the west side, westward. And indeed, when Joshua sent them away to their tents, he blessed them and spoke to them saying, Return with much riches to your tents, with very much livestock, with silver, with gold, with bronze, with iron, and with very much clothing. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brethren. Joshua blesses them, sends them home to their families. Their families have been without their fathers and their brothers for a very long time. And so Joshua says, return with wealth. He's talking about the spoils of war. They were given large herds, great quantities of gold, silver, bronze, iron, clothing. 
these riches were to be shared with all the tribal people. In other words, just like in the real world, when my son joins the army, when your brothers and sisters join armed services, they go away to protect us and we stay at home and protect the family and protect the land. We're reminded that God rewards those who serve and those who stay home and care for families and lands. We're also reminded that faithfulness and obedience brings reward. This has been a big theme that we've looked at in the book of Joshua. And again, part of the point of of, of victorious Christian living and faithfulness and obedience, it brings with it reward. I could go on and on. The faithful servant of Jesus is holy in their life. Jesus said, be ye followers of, or Paul wrote, be ye followers of me, even as I am of Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. The faithful servant of Christ has the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul preached this as an ongoing theme in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8. He said, I have come to preach the unsearchable riches which are of Christ. The love of Christ, he said, motivates him. The power of Christ, he said, strengthens him in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. The work of Christ was his joy. And to please Christ was what was in the forefront of his constant attention. Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, If I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. The faithful servant reminds himself or herself. I am doing this for Jesus. I'm doing it for the love of God. I'm doing it for the love of Christ. I am motivated to serve. Not in order to please the pastor. Not even in order to please my husband or my wife. Not so that I can have my name or so that I can have some sort of recognition. I'm doing this for Jesus. And so what are the rewards of obedience? We recognize the claims of God in our life. And this is part of what Joshua is saying. He's saying, guess what? With faithfulness and obedience and reward, you begin to understand. God has a claim on my life. We accept the authority of Jesus as the proof of our conversion. This is why Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me and you'll keep my commandments. Obedience is the evidence of our relationship with the Father as his children, according to 1 Peter 1.14. Obedience is proof of love and the condition of receiving the Spirit's power in Acts chapter 5, verse 32. Obedience was the indicator that the Spirit is at work in our life. This becomes important because disobedience of necessity hinders love and hinders the work of the Spirit. So the ongoing testimony of the Scripture is that the faithful servant is rewarded. The righteous are rewarded. The believer is rewarded with heaven's character. The person who seeks 
things above rather than things below is rewarded. The servants of the Lamb are rewarded. The believer who endures and perseveres to the end is rewarded. The believer who suffers persecution is rewarded. The person who separates from the world is rewarded. The person who rejects the treasures of this world in order to embrace the treasures of Christ are rewarded. And so he gives warnings about giving false impressions in verses 9 all the way to verse 20. It says in verse 9, so the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh returned and departed from the children of Israel at Shiloh. Now again, take note. The instructions are taking place at Shiloh. Why? This is the place where the leadership is gathered. This is the place where the tabernacle is camped, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the country of Gilead, that means the east side of the Jordan, to the land of their possession, which they had obtained according to the word of the Lord by the hand of Moses in the before they entered the land. Remember they said to Moses, give us this land. Verse 10, and when they came into the region of the Jordan, which is in the land of Canaan, the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, listen carefully, built an altar there by the Jordan, a great, impressive altar. Some people wonder if this was an altar that looked very much like the altar that was at Shiloh the altar where the sacrifices took place. So think about what's happening. The tribes go back on the east side. They decide to build an altar on the east side. Now again, why did they decide to build this altar? Later on in the text, we're going to see that they did it as a testimony or as a witness or as a tribute to Joshua's exhortation in part, I think, to remain faithful. In other words, they're listening to what Joshua's saying. Be faithful to the Lord. Obey the Lord. Remember who you are. Remember who you serve. Remember who you, you sacrificed for and the worship of God. And I'm going to suggest to you that in the innocence of their heart, they're trying to do exactly that. And that's going to be their argument. But guess what? The children of Israel on the west side of the Jordan are going to completely misinterpret what they've done. Their motives may have been entirely innocent, but the action is going to cause a profound concern, a deep conflict that is going to even come to the very brink of civil war. The neighboring tribes of the West concluded that this great, impressive altar would be seen as an alternative place to provide sacrifice and worship. Why is that a problem? It's a huge problem because God said there's only one place of sacrifice and there's only one place of worship. It's the sacrifice and the worship that God has ordained. It's always been that way from the beginning of time. There's always been two ways to approach God. His way and every other way. At the very beginning of the Bible, you'll remember that Cain and Abel bring a sacrifice to the Lord. Abel brings the sacrifice of an animal and the shedding of its blood. Cain brings fruits and vegetables. 
in a Whole Foods retail outlet. No, that he doesn't bring the Whole Foods retail now. But the whole point is he wants to worship God, but he doesn't want to worship God on, on his own on God's terms. And so it has always been. God has, by revelation, said, this is the basis that you can come to me. And so in the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews says that in times past, God spoke to the, through the prophets, but he has in these last days spoken to us by his own dear son, Jesus Christ. We as Christians understand, much to the chagrin and much to the consternation and much to the confusion and much to the animus and anger of our family and our friends when we say to them, there's only one way to God, and that's Jesus Christ. It's not something I made up. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Can't you come to God different ways? Not according to the Bible. So the, the, the tribes who settled on the east side of the Jordan are going to argue that they built this altar as a reminder, as a witness of their own inheritance in the land that they occupied. But again, I'm going to point something out to you. That shouldn't have been necessary. They didn't need to build an altar on the east side because God ordained that all of the males from the tribe of Gad and Manasseh and Reuben should come to the place at Shiloh or wherever the tabernacle is in order to offer sacrifices and participate in the festival. In the law of Moses, we read in Exodus chapter 23, verse 14, Three times in the year, all your males shall appear before the Lord God. You could only appear before the Lord God in the place that he had ordained. This would be how it would be throughout the history. When the tabernacle is finally removed and, 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 and the temple is built in Jerusalem... The Jewish males, whether they lived in the far north or in the far south, if they lived in the east or west, if they lived in Egypt, if they lived in Greece, if they lived in Italy, they were required to come home. All were to have a common worship experience. Sacrifice could only be given in the place that God had ordained. And this is true even to this day. There's only one sacrifice that God accepts. And there's only one place where he accepts it. It's the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. This is the only sacrifice God will accept. Well, what if something happens like what happened just a few weeks ago where the USS Fitzgerald was, was rammed and there was a, this incredible heroic act of, of the oldest man who died in this. He was 37 years old. He saved some 20 men and he saved an additional seven, seven more and then he died. And people say, greater love hath no man than this, that he lay down his life for a friend. Is this sacrifice commendable? Yes. Is it noble? Yes. Is it salvific? No. But what if you're a good person? And what if you do good deeds? And what if you have a good heart? The Bible says that the heart is wicked and desperately evil and 
No one can understand it, that all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. That each person has to have a right relationship with God through Christ. The building of this altar is going to lead to accusation in verses 11 through 20, and then an answer in verses 21 through 29. Look what it says in verse 11. Now the children of Israel heard someone say, Behold, the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built an altar on the frontier of the land of Canaan, in the region of the Jordan, on the children of Israel's side. And when the children of Israel heard it, the whole congregation of the children of Israel gathered together at Shiloh, read it, to war, to go, to go to war against them. How serious is this? How serious is this? It's pretty serious. Now, remember who these people are. These are the people who fought with them, who sacrificed with them, and served with them. It's reminiscent of our own civil war, where there was a deep, conflict and a deep divide. How deep does the conflict have to go? How divisive does it have to be where a brother is willing to kill a brother, a father, a son, or a neighbor, a neighbor? They're willing to go to war over this. The building of the altar is interpreted by the western tribes as disobedience and apostasy and rebellion because God has already ordained that there's only one place of sacrifice, there's only one place of worship, and they saw the building of this altar as building a pagan temple or a shrine. And they're willing not just to divide, not just to break friendship and relationship. They're willing to go to war over this. And look what it says in verse 13. Then the children of Israel sent Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest. He's the high priest. And Phinehas is his son. To the children of Reuben, to the children of Gad, and to the half-tribe of Manasseh, and to the land of Gilead. Thank God. In other words, they say, hey, before we begin killing each other, let's go and talk about this. Let's check out the facts and see exactly what's happening. In verse 14, it says, And with him ten rulers, one ruler, a chief, each from the chief houses of every tribe of Israel. And each one was the head of the house of his father among the divisions of Israel. These aren't just... What's the word I'm looking for? These aren't just representatives. These are the people in charge who have authority and control and great respectability within the tribes of Israel. The ten tribes west of the river decide to send the son of the high priest along with ten rulers. They're going to gather the facts. They're going to compile the evidence. They're going to assess the situation. Now, you have to remember something. That civil war at this point isn't going to just threaten the existence of the tiny, tiny nation that now has a foothold. Remember, God has a plan and a purpose for these people. And that place, God is going to unfold a future. And remember, Satan wants to thwart that future. Just like Satan will send misunderstandings and conflicts 
and divisions into your own life. And this is important. Because you should be asking the text at this point. Well, yeah, in history there were going to have a civil war, but why is this important to me? What does this have to do with me? The answer, of course, is the perils of misunderstanding. Have you had a friendship with someone? Or a relationship with someone? Who through a series of perceived slights or doctrinal differences or hurt feelings that you're now willing to go to war over this issue. You're willing to, to sacrifice your friendship and your relationship because you see in them or they see in you some disturbing problem. And it's going to be a real problem. And here's what we understand. That, it's, that these problems are easy to start, they're easy to spread, and the further they go, the more dangerous they become, so that friendships are broken, and families are torn apart, Ch churches are torn apart, communities are torn apart, nations are torn apart. Can you imagine... If all of the mistakes and all of the misunderstandings and all of the perceived slights were suddenly done away with. Can you imagine the joy, the peace, the unity, the revival that, that might take place if people started giving other people the benefit of the doubt? Being patient, long-suffering, looking for good rather than looking for bad. And there are lots of reasons for mistakes and misunderstandings. Sometimes we can set up our own standards of right and wrong behavior. Sometimes we make the mistake of forbidding what the Bible allows and then allowing what the Bible forbids. We demand freedom to be everybody's freedom and restrictions to be everybody's restriction. We expect uniformity of opinion. We believe only with our finite minds can grasp. And sometimes we make mistakes. In chapter 14 of Romans, Paul deals with misunderstandings, mistakes, and questionable things. He understood that sometimes Christians disagree about personal practices. Why do some Christians think it's okay to watch certain shows or participate in certain celebrations or eat certain food or drink certain drinks while they exercise their freedom and then they want to restrict other people's freedom? Paul reminds the Romans that we're not to act simply from passion or emotion, but we are to have convictions about certain things. Someone has said, Opinions are things that we hold, but convictions are things that hold us. I've defined legalism as when my opinion becomes your obligation. And so Paul writes and he says, are you fully convinced that you can do something or refrain from doing things in Romans chapter 14 verses 1 through 5? Can you do whatever it is you're doing unto the Lord in chapter 14 verses 6 through 9? Will your activity stand before the judgment seat of Christ or the Bema seat in chapter 14 verses 10 through 12? Will what you're doing cause others to stumble in chapter 14 verses 13 through 21? Can you really 
say what you're doing. You're doing it by faith and confidence in, in chapter 14, verses 22 and 23. Are you doing this to please yourself or please others or please the Lord? And so the Bible gives us helpful instruction of how we can work together and avoid unnecessary conflict, unnecessary misunderstandings. And so this chapter is telling us in part what is about to happen. And so in verse 15, look what it says. Then they came to the children of Reuben, to the children of Gad, and to the half-tribe of Manasseh, and to the land of Gilead. And they spoke with them saying, listen, listen to this language. Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, what treachery is this? that you've committed against the God of Israel to turn away this day from following the Lord in that you have built for yourselves an altar that you might rebel this day against the Lord. It's clear what you've done. You've disobeyed God and Moses. You've created another place of worship in rebellion and disobedience in order to divide us. The delegation appeals to the apparent rebels in the name of Israel, they ask probing questions. How could they trespass? How could they break faith in the Lord? How could they turn away? What is it that would cause them to rebel against God? And look what else they say in verse 17. Is, is the iniquity of pure not enough for us, from which we are not cleansed till this day, although there was a plague in the congregation of the Lord? but that you must turn away this day from following the Lord. And it shall be if you rebel today against the Lord that tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. Verse 19, Nevertheless, if the land of your possession is unclean, then cross over to the land of the possession of the Lord where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take possession among us. But don't rebel against the Lord nor rebel against us by building yourselves an altar besides the altar of our Lord God. Even though they accuse them of rebellion and apostasy and disobedience. They're basically saying, look, if you need to come closer to us, we'll give you part of our land. We'll sacrifice our possessions. We'll give up what we have in order for you to have it if you will remain faithful to the Lord. Can you imagine saying to your children, or to your grandchildren, or to your husband, or your wife. Look, don't disobey God. Don't dishonor God. Don't rebel against God. You say to your children, look, I've had people in our church, when I discover that they're living together without the benefit of marriage, I'll say, you know what, you need to separate. Don't disobey God. Oh, but we're, we're not doing anything wrong. We're not sexually involved. I go, I believe you. But you're placing yourself in unnecessary temptation. Look at how hot she is. She's in the next room and all you can think about is that she's in the next room. Guess what? You need to move out. Well, we can't afford it. 
I'll help you find a place to live. And I'll even help you with your rent. If you will obey God, I will sacrifice in order to make it possible for you to obey God. And one of two things happens. They will. Or they don't really want to obey God and, and they leave the church. I don't want people to leave the church. I want them to stay. I want them to honor God. I don't want them to disobey God. The plague or the inquiry of pure is found, by the way, in Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 through 18. In that, in that, in the, in the inquiry or, or, or the plague of Peor, God judged a group of rebels who decided to go rogue against Moses and God judged the people. So they asked the deciding question, are you turning away from the Lord? Because if you're turning away from the, the Lord, rebellion is going to result in judgment. And the judgment isn't just going to fall on you. It's going to fall on all of us. So now, but think about what's happening. Imagine a Christian says to a Christian, don't you understand that we being many are, are one body, we're joined and fitted together, that what you do, even though you think you're doing it privately, even though you think that you're not involving anyone else, the Bible says we being many are one body joined and fitted together. Your rebellion and your disobedience affects everyone in the church. They say in verse 20, did not Achan, the son of Zerah, commit a trespass in the accursed thing? And wrath fell on the whole congregation of Israel. And that man did not perish alone in his iniquity. You'll remember that he took things that didn't belong to him that were set aside for the tabernacle and the service of the Lord. And his whole family perished. And not only did his whole family perish, but you'll remember because he did this thing, they were defeated at Ai and 36 human beings beings died because of his rebellion and disobedience. And so the tribes, even though they misunderstand the motives and even though they're using strong language, they're demonstrating a, a costly and a sacrificial love. They offer to share their own land with their lost abother. They appeal to them not to rebel against them, against God. They remind them of God's judgment in verse 20. And so, look what it says in verses 21 through 34, remembering God and reconciliation. In verse 21, it says, Then the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh answered and said to the heads of the divisions of Israel, The Lord God of gods, the Lord God of gods, they repeat it, Elohim, Elohim, the true and living God. There's other pretend gods, but there's only one true and living God. He knows and let Israel itself know. That means all of the rest of the 10 tribes. If it is in rebellion or if in treachery against the Lord, do not save us this day. They make a statement and they swear by God concerning their motives that if what we have done is in rebellion and disobedience, if it is apostate, do not save us this day. We're willing to be judged by God and accept the consequences of judgment if that's true. And listen to what they say. If we have built ourselves an altar to turn from following the Lord, or if to offer it on a burnt offering or grain offering or peace offering, let the Lord himself require 
an account. They understood according to the law of Moses, there's only one place where real sacrifice can be made. There's not two places. There's not three places or four places. There's only one place. They're saying, hey, we built an altar, but we're not making sacrifices on that altar. In verse 24, but in fact, we have done it for fear. For a reason. Saying, in time to come, your descendants may speak to our descendants saying, what have you to do with the Lord God of Israel? Do you know, do you know what they're saying? You're on the western side of the Jordan. We're on the eastern side of the Jordan. On the western side of Jordan, you might say, we're the true Israel. And you're the false Israel. We thought that it might come to a place where because we've made the choice that we made, that you wouldn't think that we were the children of Jacob and the inheritors of the promise. They're basically saying, we have done this thing not in order to rebel or to be treacherous against God. We've done this thing for the very reason that you just talked about. We want to make sure that our children love the Lord and our descendants love the Lord. The eastern tribes explain to Phineas to, that, that they call on the Lord to serve as witness and judge about their motives. That if they've done it in treachery or rebellion, don't save us. They say to the high priest, the altar is to serve as a memorial. Reminding of, of their common faith. Their kinship and their commitment to one another. In verse 25 he says, For the Lord has made the Jordan a border between you and us. You children of Reuben and children of Gad. You have no part in the Lord. It's their way of saying, hey, because you decided to live on the other side, you don't really belong with us. So your descendants would make our descendants cease fearing the Lord. They're already afraid that an artificial division is going to take place. Therefore, we said, let us now prepare to build ourselves an altar, not for burnt offering, nor for sacrifice, but that it may be a witness between you and us and our generations after us, that we may perform the service of the Lord before him with our burnt offerings, uh, with our sacrifices and with our peace offerings, that your descendants may not say to our descendants in time to come, you have no part with the Lord. We're trying to create a mechanism where division doesn't take place, where unity is preserved. In verse 28, therefore we said that it will be when they say this to us or to our generation in time to come that we may say, here is the replica of the altar of the Lord which our fathers made, though not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifices, but it is a witness between you and us. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn from following the Lord this day to build an altar for burnt offerings, grain offerings, sacrifices besides the altar our God, which is before his tabernacle. In other words, this is their way of saying, we want to honor God. We want to obey God. We want to remind you and us that sacrifice and worship can only take place in the place that God has designated. In short, there's only one place where sacrifice can take place. There's only one place where real worship can take place. So the Western tribes want to know, well, why did you build the altar? 
Is it for false worship? And you have to understand something. The eastern tribes are shaken. They are shaken with the accusation of rebellion and apostasy. They give this passionate defense. They appeal to God as their witness, not once but twice in verses 21 and 23. They ask God to judge them that if they're guilty of rebellion and apostasy, then by all means, we will embrace the consequences. They argued that they feared isolation from the true faith and worship of God because of this Jordan River. They wanted future generations to know that they wanted to be true to Abraham and Moses. They feared the inhabitants that the east side would be seen not as true believers, but as make-believers. They declare their faith and their loyalty to God. They offer a sacrifice in the true place. Now, I want you to think about this. All of this is true, and all of this is passionate, and it's going to turn away the wrath and the anger of the western tribes. But these three tribes are going to be the first to collapse because of compromise because they do look to their neighbors and down the road they are going to disappear it says in verse 30 now when Phineas the priest and the rulers of the congregation the heads of the divisions of Israel who were with them heard the words that the children of Reuben the children of Gad the children of Manasseh spoke look what it says it pleased them in other words they were convinced they were satisfied with the answer this postpones the civil war. And then Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the priest says to the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, the children of Manasseh, this day we perceive that the Lord is among us because you have not committed this treachery against the Lord. Now you have delivered the children of Israel out of the hand of the Lord. And Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the priest and the rulers returned from the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, the and from the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan, to the children of Israel and brought back word to them. In other words, no, they're still with us. They love the Lord. They want to serve the Lord. They want to obey the Lord. Their hearts and their attention and their affection is for preserving unity, for finding a way to continue to go together. The children of Reuben and the children of Gad called the altar witness, quote, for it is a witness between us and the Lord, that the, that the Lord is God. In other words, this is a testimony that we want to continue. Reconciliation takes place. The crisis is revert, averted. They return home. They're filled with joy and praise. And again, the altar was supposed to serve as a witness among the tribes, as a memorial that the tribes would only and exclusively honor the Lord, would only and exclusively come to the tabernacle at Shiloh for sacrifice, the true worship center appointed by God. Point, what do we do with our mistakes? What do we do with our misunderstandings? Don't we owe it to each other before we condemn each other, to ask the simple question, how are you doing with the Lord? 
How is your heart and how is your life and how, is, how are things going for you? To look for a biblical solution, to look for a reason to stay together instead of fall apart, that we have to take conflict seriously, but we also have to take reconciliation seriously. Remember, misunderstandings can destroy friendships, marriages, churches, communities, nations. No wonder Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God in Matthew 5, 9. And so we're to be people who are looking for reasons to stay together instead of fall apart, to seek peace and unity in the spirit of God. For the Christian, sacrifice is in Christ. Our unity is in Christ. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is our Savior. Jesus is the one we look to to provide hope and the future and love and the basis for friendship and relationship. On Sunday, we learned something. True love for God can only take place in a real sense if there's the presence of Jesus in your heart and the power of the Holy Spirit giving you the ability to love each other. And so... We seek peace, unity in the spirit of God, and then fellowship in the saints. Next week, chapter 23. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for this time. Lord, how could I have forgotten this chapter? And Lord, as we look at Joshua, as he winds down his incredible ministry, as we see the leadership and faithfulness that he exercised, as he gives instructions about how to go forward into the next generation, Lord, as he gives us words of wisdom and words of warning, Lord, we pray that we would desire wisdom and that we would heed the warnings. And so again, Lord, we pray that we would be people who take it seriously, that our friendship and our fellowship matters, that conflict matters, and that reconciliation matters even more. So we commit this time to you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.